0: Let's pray. Jesus, indeed, You are the worthy Lamb of God. You're the one who takes away the sin of the world. You're the one before whom multitudes will stand and worship You, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because You purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Father, You are the spotless Lamb the one upon whom our sins were cast. You are the the scapegoat, the one upon whom our sins fled into the wilderness. And Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. And I would pray special unction today just to preach this message. I pray that You would really guide us and direct us in these matters of faith that we would be like Abraham and be like Sarah who would believe the impossible, who would trust when things are are not seen and understood, and who would live faithfully unto You, even though we never see the fulfillment of everything that You have for us. So help us, O Lord, in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews chapter 11. For the past two months, we have been here in this chapter. Uh, Looking at examples of faith. And I told you before we started this that we're going to slow way down. uh, Just taking slowly each of these people that have come up uh, so that we can look at them, think about them, dwell upon them, and really finally imitate them. That is the premise of why all these people are here. They are here to say, the Old Testament saints of old trusted God and so likewise we can trust God as well because we have need of faith, we have need of endurance, we have need of continuance as well. Well, we've seen the faith of Abel who worshipped God. We've seen the faith of Enoch who walked with God. We've seen the faith of Noah who witnessed for God. And this morning we come to two people, Abraham and Sarah. These are two of the most important people in all the Bible. I've heard one man say that the book of Genesis makes a beeline to Abraham and then slows down to focus upon him and his progeny. And that's really true if you think about it. From Genesis 1 through 11, 3,000 years of biblical history, 11 chapters. And then we hit chapter 12 where Abraham comes in. 75 years old already. And then from chapter 12 through chapter 25 when he finally dies, we have 14 chapters on Abraham alone. More chapters on Abraham than we have about all the creation, the fall, the flood... The scattering of the Tower of Babel beforehand just shows the importance of him. And in reality, it's not just Genesis 12, it's not just in Genesis, but Abraham is the figure that looms large over all of the Scripture. In fact, you can well argue that the entire Bible is about God's covenant with Abraham and how that is fulfilled in Jesus and carried to the consummation at the end of the ages. The Old Testament is a story really of God dealing with Israel and who was the father of Israel but Abraham. And the New Testament begins in Matthew talking about how Jesus is of the genealogy of Abraham. He was a Jew who came. And by faith, we who believe in Jesus, we are sons of Abraham. We join with Him. And in the end, the book of Revelation, the city upon which Abraham set his sights is set before us. So the whole Bible, in really, in many ways, is the, the carrying out of this covenant that God made with Abraham. And it is appropriate so we come to Hebrews 11 to see how much space is given to Abraham and Sarah. Verses eight through 12, speak about both of them. 13 through 16 speaks about them, but speaks about others as well, because it says, in verse 13, "All these died in faith. That would be Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Enoch and Abel." But it does talk about them. And then verse 17, 18, and 19. And those verses just talk about Abraham alone and Sarah are 8 out of the 40 verses in this chapter. So if you do your math really fast, 8 is... I think it's 20%. Is that right? It's one-fifth, 20% of this. Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of faith is focused upon Abraham. And it is, it is worthy. I mean, he is the father of faith. It's called a friend of God. He's mentioned nearly 250 times in the Bible. Probably more than anybody else in the Scriptures. Uh, maybe Jesus is more. I haven't checked that though. It, it, it could be close. I mean, Abraham is, is often mentioned. Uh, Jesus is a lot though. So, reading in our text this morning, let's, let's do that. And as I do, I want you to focus your attention upon faith. Because the call of this passage is for us to be like Abraham and to be like Sarah. Now, there's lots of ways they're different from us. But we ought to be like them in their faith. Here we go. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for this city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants, as the stars of the heavens in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. I trust you can see the repetition of the words by faith it says by faith in verse 8. It says by faith in verse 9. It says by faith in verse 11. And these are really the hooks upon which I am pinning my three points this morning. By faith, by faith, by faith. First point here this morning comes from verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That's what he did. If you look there, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed. I trust you can see my point there, comes right from the text. When he was called describes when he obeyed. By going out to a place described how he obeyed. But it was all centered and focused around his obedience. His faith worked itself out in obedience. His His obedience was a demonstration of his faith. And if Abraham had not gone out, it would have been a demonstration that he indeed had no faith at all. But he did go out, which demonstrates he had faith. Now, Notice where Abraham went. It says that he went to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. It's talking obviously about uh, the land of Canaan, but this land is going to be inherited by Abraham. Abraham was told to go out. So far, so good. But in the last phrase of verse 8 is really where Abraham's face shines. It's where it's a great application for us because we see that he went out, here it is, not knowing where he was going. God said to go, and Abraham said, okay. And he went. He didn't even say, where are we going? He just went. And that is my sub-point of my point. My points are, are pretty basic, but my sub-point is really where the application comes. Abraham obeyed even when he didn't fully understand. Isn't that what faith is? I mean, in chapter... 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here was something Abraham had not seen, and yet he was told to go to that place. Abraham wasn't shown the land first and then go out. Abraham, let me show you this land, full of milk and honey, and I want you to come here. Does it look attractive enough? us? God, God's not even baiting him with the land. Rather, he just says, Abraham, go. And he went. You know, this passage reminds me a bit of my wife, Yvonne. Some of you may have heard the story, but you can bear with me. Is that most of you know she was born and raised in California. For how many years are you in California? 23. Okay. Married. I was 25. She was 23 when we got married. Almost 19 years ago. And uh, we brought her, I brought her to a land which she had not seen. You visited once, right? I remember you, you visited once in... Uh, it was um, Thanksgiving time and there was a lot of snow. I remember that. We almost were late to the airport at that time. But when she went to, came to Illinois, she really didn't understand what living here was like. So the story I like to tell was the first fall that, that came, um, 1992, the fall came and she saw the colors of the trees and she went, wow, this is pretty, this is gorgeous. And I'm sure I, I can't, I think you probably voiced to me what a wonderful place this is, that we that we are living and delighted to be in Illinois. What a good choice we were here and always happy in the Brandon household until winter came. And she wasn't so sure. And uh, that changed her perspective on, on a bit of things because come the next fall, when the beautiful leaves came out, there was a joy in her, but there was also... Uh, uh, an expectation she was waiting for the winner to smack her in the face like it always does and so it wasn't engaged with as much joy as it was before Her joy was tempered because she knew it was six long months of cold but as is prophetic when uh, she played her senior recital for uh, the clarinet rehearsal clarinet she played this piece who wrote the piece I don't know his piece, is, but I do remember the name of the piece, and Dirk, you got to help me out. It's called 'll Velkommen, which means what? Spring will come. So she didn't even know that that was so prophetic of her life, of what she's going to hope for, and what she has been hoping for, 'll come." Well, it, Yvonne's journey to Illinois is a little bit like Abraham. Abraham went out not knowing really where he was going and that's the essence of the call of Abraham to go to a land. It is recorded for us in Genesis 12 that Phil read for us. I want you to turn back there. So I want to just work through those verses here a little bit because they really, they really help us. They contain the call of Abraham. We're, we're going to see in these verses just the great grace that God has for Abraham because God just appeared to Abram. Abram, Abraham, I'll use them interchangeably. But in chapter 12, verse 1, it's, it's God... The Lord said to Abraham... Now, why did He make these big promises to Abraham? Only by God's grace. This is election in the Scriptures. It is, it is God choosing Abraham of all the people in Ur the Chaldeans. It's modern day Iraq. God chose Abraham and just chose to bless him. And it's the foundation of the Abrahamic Covenant is that God decided to bless Abraham and then through him has blessed us all. What a kind and gracious God we have. But God then said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's a call to Abraham. Is a, a call to get up and go, and there's a promise with that that I'm going to make you, I'm going to put you in the land, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you mightily. I and mean, These are just blessings that have come. Abraham did not in any way earn this at all. It was just a call to him. Didn't give any indication what the land was like. He said go, and in verse four we see Abram's faith in action. Abram went forth. As the Lord had spoken to him. And the idea here is we get his, his obedience was swift. God said, go. He packed up and went. Now, to pack up all his belongings certainly would have taken a, a while, but he took up everything that he owned and left for the land. And this wasn't easy. It's more than a thousand miles from Ur the Chaldeans up to Haran was the path he took. You can catch that from chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, up to Haran and then down... Uh, to Palestine. I mean, that's the way everybody traveled because you wouldn't travel across the Arabian Peninsula. You always traveled up and then down on the trade routes. And that's where Abraham went. More than a thousand miles. Is a thousand miles a long way? A thousand miles a long way for us. And how much longer when you're walking by camel and by animals and people all the way. It would have taken him months to get here. fact, though, looks like he stopped in Haran. For a while. Because it says there in chapter 11, verse 31, that he settled there. But eventually he was coming on his way to the promised land. And we see that in verse 4. Lot went with them. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated. So everything that they had, they packed it all up in their camel U-Haul. And they came and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. Now, we don't know if these are servants or family members, because we know that in Haran, Terah died. Abram's father, It's probably perhaps why they uh, paused there for a little bit. We don't, we don't know, but they brought the persons, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, now, the Canaanite was in the land. And then, verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. There's the promise of the land to Abraham. The promise, it says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, that he went out to a land which he was received for an inheritance. This is the land that he was received to inheritance. Canaan, often called Palestine, modern day Israel, is Abraham's land. And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him, just worshiping him. And here's Abraham following the Lord, finally arriving in the land of Canaan, showing him the land he received. And I just say, this move of his was a great act of faith. He, he just went out, leaving everything, leaving his comforts, leaving his security. We have every reason to believe he took so many possessions and belongings that he was well settled there. His family was there, his relatives were there, things were nice there. But he went. And I think there's a lot of for us as well. God may call you to something that you can't see. If you can see it, it's not faith. He may call you to something to go. Uh, I think back uh, when Yvonne and I, well, we started the church here, Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, we we were launching out to a place that we didn't know. I remember coming up here and having a a woman drive us around the city and explain, okay, you've got Perryville here and you've got... uh, Mulford here, and you got Alpine here, and you've got Riverside, and you've got... state. I mean, just driving kind of all around town. You remember that drive we had? Um, we didn't know where we were going. And leaving, I left a nice job I liked. Uh, moved from a comfortable place, just down the street from my parents. Hometown I grew up in, a lot of comfort there, but we moved to Rockford, became dependent upon the Lord. It's been stretching time for us, but it's been a time of... Of faith, and, and even recent times, moving into this building has been a stretching time for us. I mean, we've been saving for years so that we could purchase a place like this and we depleted almost all of our savings to get in and there's some financial pressures on us. There are pressures also of expectations. Everyone's got expectations. What's going to happen now that we're here? or not? I, I feel it. I have hopes and visions and dreams. Many are yet unrealized here. They're stretching and I expect to be for years. To come. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to be stretched. And so... God may be calling you to do some things. Be good to stretch and go out like Abraham. Now, we're not called like Abraham. We don't hear audible voices today. Hey, leave your country and go. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't lead us today. He may lead us in your circumstance of your life. He may lead you in the fact that He has taken your job away from you. Those of you who are unemployed are are much like where Abraham was. Uncharted territory. You don't know what's ahead Here's a great time to really trust the Lord. A great time to have faith like Abraham. Allowing Him to lead you into your land of employment opportunities. The question is, will you be like Abraham? And another way I think we can be like Abraham is a call to evangelize. To speak the Gospel to people. That's a clear command, right? Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and it may be, as God has said, go and preach the Gospel. There may be people in your life who do not share the Gospel with, who need to hear it. And, and for you, you, maybe you fear. I know that's my biggest difficulty in evangelism, just fearing. What, what are they going to do? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to you know, look down on me? Are they going to persecute me in, in some ways? And yet, the call of faith—the the call that says God—God God says, "Go." The, the call that obeys will go and speak with people, not knowing the result. So we lay the word open and bare before them and plead them to believe. Plead them to believe in Christ. Maybe this just for you, or just plain sin in your life. I mean, you know what God's word says. You know the will of God. You don't need to have a, a voice come to you and say, "This is your voice." Maybe there's some sin in your life. You just need to. You need to follow the, the will of God by obeying like Abraham did. If you have the faith of Abraham, you'd obey the Lord and quickly. And oh may God grant us the faith of Abraham that obeys quickly. Well, there's the first characteristic of Abraham. He obeyed even when he didn't fully understand. And now we go back to Hebrews chapter 11. We can see the second by faith statement. My second point here is that by Faith he lived. Okay, I trust you can see that. By faith he lived. Verse 9, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I trust you can see the main point there. He lived. Okay, this one doesn't doesn't much make sense apart from our subpoint. But that is the main verb. If anything I want to teach you, and exposition, when you come to the Scriptures, find the main thought. And the main thought is here that he lived, meaning he carried about his life. Subpoint: point, Abraham lived even when he never fully realized the promises. That's what verses 9 and 10 are speaking about. Yes, he was great promises given him by God, but he lived in the land never realizing fully all those promises. And if you think about that, you will be amazed. Here was Abraham, our mighty father, who received these great promises, but he never got to settle in the land. Oh, sure, he lived there, but he never owned there. He always lived in tents. The only piece of property that he owned, he did own a piece of property, was a burial plot for his wife. Other than that, he owned nothing there in the land. Abraham spent his entire time at campgrounds. Liaquina. Rock Cut State Park. Lake Shabana. I mean, he just... That's where he stayed. He stayed in campgrounds with tents. Now, they weren't as nice as that. They didn't have running water or nice amenities or anything like that. But he, he went around in tents. I love what Simon Kistenmacher, the commentator, says. He says, Abraham's stay in Canaan was as temporary as the pegs he drove into the ground to keep his tents pitched. And... Abraham was a shepherd probably and he was constantly on the move. After God showed him the promised land in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, we read the next verse, Genesis 12, verse 8, Then he proceeded there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on and continued on towards the Negev. And then if you continue on, the rest half of chapter 12, you find him going into Egypt. And then he's back again by Genesis chapter 15. He's wandering around. and We, we think of the time of Moses as a time of wandering. Abraham was a wanderer as well. And it wasn't only him. As verse 9 says, it was Isaac as well. It was Jacob as well. They wandered about the land. Shepherds constantly on the move looking for better land in which to graze their sheep. So just think about that with me, if you will. Here's mighty Abraham who received the covenant from God Himself. The covenant that overarches and guides the whole of the Scriptures. To whom it received the, the promise, to your descendants I will give this land, Genesis 12, verse 7, but never given to Abraham. It's a great lesson for us. Even Abraham the patriarch didn't experience the best, his best life here on earth. You know there are many preachers who promise you your best life now. Now is the time where you can have your best life. Well, the reality of it is your best life isn't now. Your best life will be later. Now it, it may well be that you have some blessings this life, and certainly a life of Christ is is filled with blessings. That's for sure. But it may well be that you have sorrows in your life that take you, that that are with you into the grave and never let up. Issues never resolved in life. Like Abraham, this issue of the land never resolved in his life. And see, that won't be okay if you're looking for your ultimate fulfillment here. But if you're looking for your ultimate fulfillment there, it'll be okay. And that's exactly what Abraham was doing. Though he had this promise to inherit the land, for his descendants it was clarified. In verse 10 though, it says where his true sights were set. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham wasn't looking to a city here on earth. He was looking for a heavenly city. Abraham is one of those talked about in verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham desired a better country than the land of Canaan. He desired a heavenly country. And the thought of a heavenly city comes up several times in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 22, where we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It comes up in chapter 13, verse 14. For here, that is on earth, in our life, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And that's really the key to understanding Abraham's faith, is that he wasn't focused upon the here and now, he was focused upon the there and then. He was focused upon the life to come. He was, as you will, heavenly-minded. Great application for us, right? Where's your heart? Where's your affections? Are you heavenly-minded? Do you have heart and affection focused here upon the earth? Or is your heart and affections focused upon heaven? Are you longing for the heavenly city like Abraham was? Because when your heart is focused beyond this earth, it will create... Uh, a healthy tension in you. will create a healthy contentment in you. will create a joy in things eternal. You remember Paul in Philippians chapter 1 had this struggle. He was so heavenly minded that he told those in Philippi that my heart and my desire is to depart and to, to be with Christ. But to remain here is more necessary for your sake. So he'll stay here. But if Paul had it, he'd be going to heaven. But for the sake of the people, he, he stayed on earth. I remember John MacArthur telling the testimony of uh, some medical problems he had. He had some knee surgeries because of some old athletic injuries, I remember. And uh, it's just common with knee surgeries is there's a danger of, I'm not sure, clotting. And uh, he had a danger. He was in the hospital and clotting was close to dying. And um, his testimony, he said many times, I woke up disappointed. That's what he said. He's wanting wanted to leave the worries of the world, and I'm sure the burden of leadership upon him is great. And uh, but the, but there's there's the feel, there's the tension, right? To to set our minds on the things above, because that's where we are citizens. Philippians three, verse twenty. Not here upon the earth, but in heaven. And I would just encourage you to to really set your heart upon the things above. Set your heart upon the future city. Set your heart upon Revelation 21 and 22, where all of history is going. And be like Abraham then. Alright, well here's my my third point. Abraham obeyed. Abraham lived. He obeyed when he didn't understand everything. He lived even without receiving all the promises. And here's my third final point. Sarah received. Okay, again, not a very scriptive thing, but the main point of verse 11 by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life. Since she considered him faithful, who had promised, therefore there was born, even of one man, and him as good, as dead at that, as many descendants, as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Subtitles going to help here, okay? Because Sarah received, she, she received what? She received even when it was impossible. She received the ability to conceive even when it was impossible. Now, I need to mention a little bit about translation here. I know some of you have the old NIV in your lap. 1984 translation. And uh, it, it reads differently. Let me just read it for you. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah, herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful and promised makes Abraham the subject rather than Sarah the subject. Um, I could talk to you about the details behind that, but for the sake of interest, mostly, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, but just to say, in the, the update, the 2010 update of the NIV, they changed it back again to leave Sarah the subject of the sentence. The new one reads, and by faith even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered faithful who had made the promise." Like all major translations, put Sarah there as the subject, though you might be able to make a case for Abraham. At any rate, it's talking about faith. Abraham, Sarah. And I trust you know the story. God had promised that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. <laughs> That's all well and good to make that promise, right? Until, until you're 90 years old, don't have a child. Then you're wondering, well, where's, where's that promise going to take place? Sarah was barren beyond the years of childbearing. Where's, where's the promise going? And, and, and even at one time, God had, Abraham had a discussion with God saying, well, it's Eleazar, um, one born with the servants in my house. He, he's the closest, closest one. Maybe he's a nephew. I, I don't know who he was, but just someone in the house. Maybe he's going to receive the inheritance. Of course, you remember the the bad plan of Abraham and Sarah with Hagar. You said, okay, well, at least maybe Hagar can bear you a child. That's bad news. Even told that through Isaac, through uh, Sarah, you'd bear a son. But there are difficulties in faith, and I can believe being difficult. Being nine years old, and without a child, it's hard. Well, one day, according to... Genesis 18. Three men came and visited Abraham and Sarah in their tents. Now, discussion about whether these were really men, whether they were angels, whether it was the angel of the Lord, probably. A theophany. They appeared to Abraham. Abraham saw them and, and prepared a nice dinner for them. Killed a, a calf for them so as to prepare and to eat. And one of the three men said this, Genesis 18.10, I will surely return at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Kids, what did Sarah do when she heard that? She What'd she do, Ethan? She laughed. She laughed. You're right. She, she snickered to herself and kind of like, <laughs> yeah, right. After I become old, shall I have the pleasure, my Lord, being old also? How old was she at this time? A year before she was 90, she was 89. She was 89 at this time of laughed. Can this really be? Any 89-year-old? We have any 89-year-old women here? Well, I don't think so. Betty, maybe you're about the closest thing to it. Or, we love you. I mean, that's not a... But if a God would come and say you're going to have a baby, I think you'd, you'd, you'd laugh as well, right? God, I think so. I mean, I'm just trying to put some put some shoe levels to this. I mean, this is, this is like real stuff. She's 89 years old. You're going to have a baby. And, and she kind of laughed. And, and the, but the man said, no. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Well, sure enough, God did the impossible, opened the womb of Sarah. In Genesis 21, we read, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time which God had spoken to them. Sarah was ninety; Abraham was a hundred years old at that time. And here it is: God doing the impossible. Sarah receiving ability to conceive a son even in her old age. And they called him Isaac. And Isaac, of course, means. What does it mean? Do we know that? We should know that. What does Isaac mean? It means laughter. Yeet sack means to laugh as a laughter. I think in some sense it might have an an allusion to Sarah's initial response to things. But also, it said in Genesis 21, 6 and 7, about just joy, just the joy that this child brought. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? You hear the joy, you hear the praise of God, that they are laughing afterwards, laughing with joy and excitement and delight at the wonderful things that God did. God did the impossible for Sarah. And now how did He do the impossible? He did it through faith. So verse 11 says, it's by faith that Sarah received the ability to conceive now here the question really comes up, I mean, because you think about Genesis, you think about her laughing. If anything, you see Sarah may be unbelieving. Well, apparently we don't know the rest of the story. We don't know the whole story. She's probably, Sarah was no different than her husband who had times of faith and had times of doubting uh, because even Abraham had times of doubting for sure. So maybe, maybe they, there was faith there. Which is encouraging to us, right? It's not perfect faith. It's a faith, though, that trusts God even to do the impossible. You know, we have, we have the responsibility even to believe the impossible, too. I, I preached a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, about Ephesians 3.20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus to all generations. God is able to do more abundantly beyond what we ask and even beyond what we think. What we conceive of as to be impossible. God can do and accomplish those things. So just as Sarah was to believe the impossible, direct revelation, so also we are called to pray, God, pray to God who can do the impossible. Well, let's look at our last verse this morning there. It's kind of the summation of Sarah and Abraham talking about this birth of this child. It says, Therefore, good summary word, there was born even of one man, born of one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead at that, since he was a hundred years old. He was dead his reproductive abilities. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, this verse kind of looks back on Abraham saying that, yes, from Abraham, there are born so many people, as the sand which covers the seashore, innumerable as the stars of heaven in the sky. And that, of course, was promised to him. In Genesis 15, God took Abram outside and said, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? So shall your descendants be. And then even after the sacrifice of Isaac, which we'll look at in a few weeks, he made a sim- similar promise, that you will have your descendants be as, as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And as, this number filled as the stars of the sky. And we can look back and we can say, yeah, the prophecy was fulfilled. But you think about Abraham. When he died, he, he had one son. I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to, hard to expect all that. It's pretty impossible. Lots of, lots of nations have come and gone. Wiped out. The Assyrians wiped out a bunch of people. people dominated people, but the Jews have stayed on. The Jewish people have filled and covered the globe. The number of Jews is many. And it even says here that that has been fulfilled with so many that you can't even even count them. And how easy is it for us to look back upon Abraham? But Abraham couldn't look back. I mean, everything from him was was looking forward. He, He had promises, but never saw them fulfilled himself. But Abraham believed. And and you may may well experience the same things. Um, God may do some wondrous things through you that that you know nothing of that only 200 years from now can you look back and say, wow, look at what God did through me. And you'd be like, long gone. (laughs) It's not like you did it. It's totally God who did it. But there may be long-lasting fruit in your life that you know nothing of. I mean, Phil talked about family worship. I'm telling you that that's the importance of that, just to pass on to your progeny and pass on to your your kids. Do so they pass on to their kids? God might use one of them in a, a great way beyond your wildest expectations. Like like here, here's just a, here's just a small snippet of something that I experienced. We started Kishwaukee Bible Church 1993. We started it and. Uh, so we're going through. I was working on my master's in computer science and at, at Northern Illinois University. And, and one one year, we really focused our attention upon the campus. And you know, you're trying to start a college ministry there. I'm not sure. Maybe the 1995 or 1996 or is it 94? Okay, we were there in 1994. And we were there and tried to start it. And really, by all external folks, you can say, you know, as a failure after a year, really not a lot. A lot of students, not a lot, just a handful, just a small group. Um, we had some bore fruit, some though flaked, flaked pretty bad. Um, but we just sought to do what we can do. But, but it's interesting, I, I look at that time, looking back, and some of the things that God did was uh, really helpful and encouraging. I, I think there was a, a freshman woman, Really drifting in her life, and she just kind of came to college and said, I'm going to pursue Jesus, and just kind of latched on to us. We had her in her home many times, and uh, I think really had an impact on her life. And now she is uh, her husband marrying a church in Lena. We still keep not real close tabs on her, but we know that that, that that's there. Also, saw a Jewish girl came to faith in Christ, that ministry, uh, and some is that, that while the time she came to faith in Christ, then she faced some parental. Massive persecution. Parents disowned her, and kind of at the end of that year, she was you know waffling in her faith. But has since come back really strong. We exchanged Christmas cards with her. I see her husband a couple times each year, and just has been a, a delight to see. That's kind of um, whatever the tulips in the ground, which we're waiting to sprout, and they have sprouted, and she's doing very well. Uh, I remember ministering to a man and woman who were living together in sin, and they both were interested in Christianity a little bit. But they weren't interested in forsaking their sin. I remember talking with a guy particularly. I remember, can't tell you exactly where we were, but I remember we were in the cafeteria talking to him and just saying, you know, this is, this is wrong. you ought got to break up, have a time of purity, and then come together in, in marriage. And he wasn't really interested in it. Um, wasn't, you know, just thinking about Jesus and the cost. Well, since then, both he and then they eventually got married. and, and his wife then came to faith. And um, now their lives center around Christ in the church. And so after that year of ministry, I mean, they, they weren't around. They weren't involved with that. They'd off. But now they've come to faith and they, they visit us from time to time. They live in, in Iowa and they have some relatives in the city and they come by and stop by for lunch uh, every now and then, every other year. Probably a couple years, four or five years now. But sometimes it's been every other year. And we just kind of keep, we exchange Christmas cards with them. They're doing very well. They're really serving the church. God has changed their life immensely. But we never saw that while we were there. Here's an email also. I received this past summer from a guy. He said, Hi Steve, I'm not sure if you remember me or not, but I just wanted to drop you a quick letter. I was like, okay. I attended NIU from 1992 to 1996. As a new believer in 1996, I was given your name. So this was even after that ministry of some, but we were in the church and still kind of had some college things going. During my last year at NIU is when he became a Christian. I was able to attend Kishwaukee Bible Church and I just wanted to take the time to say thank you. I appreciate the biblical foundation that was provided for me during that time period. Also, I'm glad to see that you've been given the opportunity to lead a church on your own. Your family's grown up quite a bit since I was at NIU. So is mine. I'm married. I have two children. I met my wife while I was at NIU as well. At the time we weren't married, we had the opportunity to share a meal with you and your parents at their home one Sunday afternoon. And uh, then he goes on to say, hey, you know what, we're going to this church, we've been going here seven years, but so far away we're not involved, do you know anything closer by to us? And uh, this guy, I've not heard of I 1996, the last I heard of him, uh, I, I remember his name, I could never pick him out of a group of people, his, I had no idea that we had dinner with my folks at at their house, I can't... Do you remember that? No recollection of that? You don't remember meeting or Nothing. And this came to me this past summer. And, uh, you, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not trying to lift myself up in any way. I'm just trying to say that you can just labor and minister and you know nothing of the fruit that goes on. And it could very well be that there are lots of things like that that you know nothing of, that when it comes to eternity, you'll receive some rewards. And you're like, I didn't even know that, that took place. Just a word, a thought, a gospel shared, minister to people. However, however you can do that, you know. And this wasn't um, some of this. I mean, 1996, I was working full time. 1996, so just things. 1998, were kind of starting. So really busy at church, leading worship, preaching at times, Bible study, things like that. Working full time. Because um, God was God was gracious and. So I just know that's an encouragement to me, and I just want to show that to you that things can happen even long uh, beyond the time, and that's exactly what Abraham did here. I'm going to make you and your descendants. It's, it's, it's a number filled. as a stars of heaven. A number. It's numerable to sandwiches by the seashore. I'm going to do it. Abraham couldn't live to see that day, but he can see now. Abraham says he rejoiced, saw my day, and rejoiced to see that Christ of Christ. And that's where Abraham was. He didn't have much. He just had one son. But through God's seed was ready to accomplish a lot. You know, I've got, I got another illustration of that and then I'll, I'll bring us to a close. This is, is a book that's encouraged me greatly. It's called uh, um, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor The Life and Reflection of Tom Carson written by his son, D.A. Carson. How many of you have heard of D.A. Carson? Okay, Some of you probably haven't. If you haven't, just know that he's probably, in my estimation, he's the foremost theologian in America today. Um, everything I read of him, I believe. Okay, he's just, I, he's just a wonderful wonderful guy. He's written many, many books. He is scholarly, yet devotional at the same time. Uh, this year I'm reading through his, his book, For the Love of God. As I'm reading through the Scriptures together. It's just great yeah, empowering of the heart and intellect, which is 50 times greater than mine for sure. And yet, his father was an ordinary pastor. Let me just catch you the flavor of this book. De Carson writes this, "...some pastors, mightily endowed by God, are remarkable gifts to the church. They love their people, they handle the Scripture well, see many conversions, their ministries span generations. They understand their culture, yet refuse to be domesticated by it. They are theologically robust and personally disciplined." I do not need to provide you with a list of names. You know some of these people, and you've been encouraged by them and challenged by them as I have. Some of them, of course, carry enormous burdens that watching Christians do not really see. Nevertheless, when we ourselves are not being tempted by the green eyed monster, and he's talking to pastors primarily, we thank God for such Christian leaders from the past and pray for the current ones. Most of us, however, serve in more modest patches. You're a modest patch. I don't know you know that, but you're a modest patch. Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands. They will not write influential books. They will not supervise large staffs. They will, not, they will never see more than modest growth. They will plug away at their care for the age, at their visitation, at their counseling, at their Bible studies and preaching. Some will work with so little support, they will prepare their own bulletins. They cannot possibly discern whether constraints of their own sphere of service owe more to the specific challenges of the local situation or to their own shortcomings. And once in a while, they will cast a wistful eye on the successful ministries. Many of them will attend the conferences sponsored by the Reverend Masters and come away with a slightly discordant combination of, on the one hand, gratitude and encouragement, on the other hand, jealousy, feelings of inadequacy and guilt. And most of us, let us be frank, are ordinary pastors. Dad was one of them. This little book is a modest attempt to let the voice and ministry of one ordinary pastor be heard. For such servants have much to teach us. That's how the book starts. Here's how the book ends. And and so, what he did, he took his uh, journals, kind of plowed through all the journals that he wrote, and he wrote sporadically in them, and um, just his example of, of what it was. And just, boy... I read this and was so encouraged by just T.A. Carson's testimony as dad of a man who loved Jesus and evangelized people and preached his word and cared for his people and walked with integrity and yet suffered greatly. He ministered in uh, French speaking Quebec, which is very dry at uh, his time of speaking. And you know what? My dates aren't quite right here. He died in 1990, 19, 2000, 2002. Sorry, I can't. So, somewhere in there. 2002, somewhere like that. But he, so he ministered. Think about this: 1960s, something like that, in Quebec. And like, like no, no evangelical witness. Predominantly French Catholic, totally. And then, just as he was kind of of retiring age, or he never, I don't think he retired, but kind of just as he was going off the scene, revival broke out in Quebec. And we're talking. Massive people have come to Christ. I remember, I've heard of, of D.A. Carson since he's French-speaking has gone and helped train a lot of pastors there. John MacArthur has been there. Just has been an explosion of a revival there, but he never got the taste of it because he was really gone by then. But was laying the groundwork, was laying the seed, was working. He was an ordinary pastor, and and, and just his testimony of of righteousness and steadiness and pursuit and love. I, mean, I read some of the letters that he wrote to his people pleading them to believe in Jesus and you know they'd leave for something bigger they'd leave here be content with him and just face the trials of ministry he had tough but I always sought to walk through it right then it says this Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures but hundreds of people in the out oasis that's probably where he lived and beyond testify how much he loved them so he left basically a testament hundreds of people who he loved he never wrote a book but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, "By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you are good administrators." His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through the pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up. By his own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding, and in ethics he was a man of principle. His own ecclesiastical circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But, on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that really matters. Not because he was a good man, Or a great man, he was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a a forgiven man, and he heard the voice of him who longed to hear, he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I think Tom Carson may be some like Abraham. I don't know how great a man Abraham was. He's just a man who believed in God and all I did in his life is he produced a son by the help of God. And then Isaac then went to Jacob and then Joseph and the twelve tribes and and progressed on and God was mightily. But Abraham never saw of all the fruit. Never experienced what God did through him. And so I just encourage you, there may be some impossible things in your life like Abraham had. How how am I going to be a father of this great nation? Maybe difficult as your family, maybe difficult is your children, maybe difficult as your finances, maybe difficult as your health. But know that God is faithful. And I would encourage you to be like Abraham and Sarah, who just believe him and trust him for the things that are difficult. Will we do that? By God's grace, we will. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would help us to be like Abraham and Sarah. Though ordinary we may be, I pray that You would help us, even our families. We never know when a D.A. Carson would rise up and be a great blessing to the church. We never know when our words would be like the, the words of that um, that Methodist who preached that simple sermon, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And through Him, who we don't know who He was. Charles Spurgeon was converted and did a great, a great work in this world to bless countless millions. We don't know of what our children will grow up to do or have an influence. Uh, we don't know about our grandchildren. Um, but God, I pray by Your grace we might know generational faithfulness. The promise is to the children and to the children's children, to a thousand generations for those who love you and serve you and follow after you. And that's the testimony of Abraham who obeyed even when he didn't understand, who lived without fully receiving the promises, and who received a son even when it was impossible simply because he believed in you and that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So help us, O oh Lord, in these days to be people like that. God, we continue on and press on in our faith, not being discouraged because we know what You can do. May You grant us endurance because we have need of it. May we not throw away our confidence. This has a great reward. May we trust You in all these things. We love You and trust You in Christ's name. Amen.